Most of us have never studied nor are been interested in sea snails. Our guest today was fascinated with them as a small boy growing up in the Philippines. Let's learn how this has led to a pipeline of drugs for discovery. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Valdomero Oliveira. Dr. Oliveira has studied with such luminaries as Norman Davidson at Caltech and I.R. Lehman at Stanford. He now is a distinguished professor of biology at the University of Utah. He also has started a pharmaceutical company to continue the development of conopeptide compounds. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. So, Dr. Oliveira, this is really such an interesting story. Can you tell us about your discoveries as a child? I started out being an amateur shell collector, and the way that happened was I'd wait for my dad while he was playing tennis. And in the Philippines, where I grew up, the tennis courts are clay, and they usually have a pile of shells dredged from Manila Bay. And what they do is they crush the shells for making the surface of the court. And so what I would do while I was waiting for him was I'd go through the shells that hadn't been crushed yet, and I started taking them home, and that's how I started collecting shells. As I grew older, I became more focused in my interests, and I started buying books on shells. So I started learning about the animals that lived in the shells I was collecting. So the shells actually led you to the snails, not vice versa. Yeah, that's correct, yes. <laughs> and what about snails was interesting to you? Well, it really was the shells that I was interested in for a long time. So there's quite a lot of hobbyists all over the world and museum collections. And, and so there's a lot to that hobby that one can follow through on. And I, I really didn't know too much about the live snails at all. But, you know, as a shell collector, you, you read books that tell you that certain types of snails, cone snails, that if you collect these alive, you, you have to be really careful because they can kill people. So, you know, that's something that every shell collector knows. And I'd never really seen a live cone snail when I was growing up. It was only much later that I started to learn something about the snails that made the shells that I was collecting. Well, you have to forgive my ignorance, but my knowledge of snails comes from French restaurants. You're right. <laughs> and I know about escargot, but so I imagine these cone snails are different creatures? Yes, quite different. So they're marine snails, and they're cone-shaped. They have very beautiful patterns. In fact, in the 18th century and earlier, when Europeans first started going to Asia, these became really collector's items. And in Holland in particular, for a while, uh, collecting shells was, was almost as big a hobby as collecting tulips. And so people would pay ridiculous prices for the rare species of cone shells. And there's some cone shells that, you know, were really so highly priced that whenever one of the rare species came up for sale, uh, they'd actually be auctioned off with paintings by Rembrandt and by Vermeer. And very often the shell uh, you know, this is a dead shell, right, that's not very large, would actually outsell some of these paintings. There was an auction in Holland in the 18th century where a, a little cone snail that's about an inch and a half long outsold the painting by Vermeer. You know, the painting by Vermeer went for something like 50 guilders, 
and the shell went for something like 240 guilders. So, mm -hmm. so they were really pretty highly priced. So, you know, you kind of read stories like that about cone shells, but apart from the fact that they could kill people. I, I really didn't know too much about them. <laughs> Other than that. <laughs> right. <laughs> so how do they kill people, these little snails? Well, it turns out that they inject their venom using a really very handy-dandy device, which is shaped like a harpoon. It's a, a little hollow harpoon-like tooth that the snails keep on making. But this harpoon, which really literally the snail uses to harpoon its prey, uh, and so that's a way of tethering whatever it wants to capture, is also hollow. And so being hollow, it, it can also be used as a hypodermic needle. Although it's harpoon-shaped, the snail uses it the way a clinician would use a disposable hypodermic needle. So they only use it once when, for example, about 100 different kinds of cone snails capture fish as their main prey. They harpoon the fish, and when they harpoon the fish, they also inject a little bit of venom. And this venom causes the fish to immediately become immobilized. So that's how they capture the fish. And so because the fish uh, can't move anymore, they, they just kind of reel in the fish, and the fish is attached to this harpoon, which the snail also used to inject its venom. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is the 2007 Harvard Foundation Scientist of the Year, Dr. Baldomero Oliveira. We are discussing how his childhood passion has turned into a rich new pipeline of drugs. That's pretty clever of these cone snails, Dr. Oliveira. So how did your play, really, with these snails lead into research? Well, what happened was my first faculty position was in the Philippines, and I had done primarily molecular biology while um, I was a grad student and postdoctoral fellow. But when I had my own lab in the Philippines, uh, we started out without any equipment. And so I couldn't continue my work on DNA and molecular biology because we really didn't have the equipment for it. And so what happened was I decided to choose a project that could be done in the Philippines and for which there were some advantages. And because these snails are common over there, what we decided to do was collect the venom of the species that could kill people. So this is a cone snail called the geography cone. And we decided to examine this venom and to see what the components of the venom were that probably were responsible for killing people. And so that was our first project, just purifying out and trying to understand the venom and why it was capable of killing people. Because uh, that particular cone snail, the fatality rate, if there's no medical intervention, is about 70%, which is very, very high. So what did you find out about the venom? So we isolated the active components, and they turned out to be a very small proteins, peptides. And so we were a little surprised because if you look at the venoms of snakes, for example, the active components are bigger. They have about 100 amino acids or so. But, you know, the components of peptides are like the components of the proteins in your body. But these were very small, and they were so small that we could actually chemically synthesize them. And what we found was that there were two different mechanisms for the first two peptides that we isolated from the venom of the snail. 
The first one acted very much like the active component in a cobra toxin called cobra toxin, which is what kills you when you get bitten by a cobra. Uh, but the other component had a more unique kind of uh, mechanism because, uh, as you know, in Japan, people love to eat fugu or pufferfish, and it's very, very expensive, uh, not because pufferfish are rare, but because if the chef doesn't know what he's doing, then the customers begin to drop dead. <laughs> uh, and the reason for that is pufferfish have a toxin called tetrodotoxin that basically wipes out all of the electrical signaling in your nerves. And so it turns out that the second component in the venom of the snail acted very much like this pufferfish toxin. And so uh, that was pretty unique. Nobody had found that in a venom before. So these are the two components that we isolated first, and we established that they were small peptides. And so both the biochemistry and the mechanism of action was fairly interesting at the time, but it was still a fairly small project. It, it really didn't take off until much later. So how did this discovery turn into medication? Uh, well, actually, I have a couple of undergraduates at the University of Utah that were really responsible for that. So the big breakthrough, I would say, was uh, a young kid named Craig Clark came into our lab one day, and he wanted to do research. And so I told him about the cone snail project. And what he wanted to do was to inject the various components of the venom directly into the central nervous system, uh, directly into the brain of a mouse. And so what we had been doing up to that point was we had been injecting mice in their body cavity, IP. And so we had isolated those two paralytic components I told you about. And what happened was Craig wanted to see what the effect on the uh, central nervous system was. And I remember I was discouraging him. I didn't think he'd learn anything. But it turns out that if you do inject the components of the venom into the, directly into the brain of a mouse, what you find is that every component has a different effect. And so we found one component of the venom that made mice sleep, another made them run around in circles, another made them shake their heads back and forth, another made them scratch, and so forth and so on. And, and it turns out that this one venom probably had over 100 different components and almost all of them caused a mouse to do something, something really weird. So there was, you know, a behavioral effect. And so suddenly we realized that these venoms were much more complex than we had thought. And, and that really was the beginning of looking at these venoms, a, a much larger project. So let's talk about pre-alt and, and how that came to be. After this one kid learned how to do this assay, injecting different components of the venom into a mouse, there were a whole bunch of undergraduates at Utah who chose to do research in our lab, and their job was to take any venom they wanted and follow any activity they wanted and purify it. And another undergraduate at the university at the time, uh, his name is Michael McIntosh, he followed an activity that he called the shaker peptide because it made my shake. And so he purified that, and we found out what its chemical composition was, so we synthesized it. Uh, and later, we found out that it was a very specific agent that acted on a molecular component called calcium channels. And that peptide that Michael purified, uh, which came from the magician's cone or conus magus, that today is the drug that we know as pre 
which is a drug for intractable pain. So from the tennis courts of the Philippines to cone snails to pre-alt. Yeah, it was a little bit roundabout. but uh, <laughs> You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> it really was quite surprising that, that a component from a venom that the snail uses to paralyze fish, that one of those components was really useful in a, in a therapeutic setting. And, and so it just goes to show that you can never tell how research will eventually turn out. It's a great lesson. Well, I'd like to thank our guest today, Dr. Baldomero Oliveira. We have been discussing the clinical utility of sea snail venom. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.